Welcome to another episode of Legacy Podcast. This episode is going to be a recording of a message that I preached recently to the church in which I pastor, Mount Tabor Baptist Church, from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. So if you want to find out more about that passage or get the outline or the additional resources, go to the webpage under episode number 258. Thanks for listening. One thing that we are told over and over again when it comes to marriages is that one of the things that makes for a good marriage is compatibility. You've probably heard that before, and, and uh, maybe you've even read some of the statistics that tell us that when a couple comes together, if they are compatible or they are in agreement around some major issues such as child rearing and, and uh, religion and, and some of those things, that they are more likely to remain married. They're more likely to be compatible. And so compatibility is something that is very important. In fact, um, I've never visited one of these websites because I have no need to, but apparently there are some uh, some get-together websites like eHarmony is probably a very popular one, and, and uh, that's often run by uh, uh, Christians, and so it has a lot of Christian worldview and that kind of thing. And, and uh, from what I understand, that one of the areas that they really look at on that is compatibility. And so you have to write the things that you want to do and the things that you are and your uh, personality and the things that are important to you so that you might be able to meet somebody else on that same site that has those same things because uh, that supposedly is very, very important when it comes uh, to having a solid marriage. And, of course, one of the, one of the reasons that um, marriages don't last in our culture and one of the reasons why uh, or one of the areas in which um, there is description as to how these break up is irreconcilable differences. You've probably heard that before, right? Um, and the idea is, is that they no longer think they're compatible. And so compatibility is very important. Well, my question for us to answer today, not necessarily related to marriage, but the question I have for us today is, are there certain things that are incompatible with the Christian life? And the answer is yes. In fact, we are told today in this passage of Scripture in verses 4 through 9 that sin is incompatible with the Christian life. True Christians cannot habitually sin. Now, we're told some very serious words in this passage that we need to uh, understand in their context. But in verse 6, it says, whoever sins knows not Christ. In verse 8, it says, he that does sin is of the devil. In verse 9 it says, whoever is begotten of God cannot sin. So how will we understand these things? We're told over in chapter uh, 1, verse 8, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. 
And it also tells us that if we say that we have no sin, we'll deceive ourselves. And so is, is John being contradictory here when he says in this passage that it's impossible for Christians to sin? Or if we sin, that we're not really Christians. But over there it says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Well, at face value, we would look at that and we say, yeah, well, there is some contradiction there. But we have to understand in the context of what he's saying, we have to look a little bit deeper into that. So we're going to do that. And in verse 4, what it says, it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Now, what is important in this first phrase is the idea of commits sin. The way that this is written in the, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament is that this carries the idea of somebody who has habitually involved in sin. It's not, not as though someone might stumble once in a while into sin. It's somebody who has made it a practice, made it their lifestyle, made it their habit of sin. And so we might actually translate this, whoever continues to commit sin also commits lawlessness. I've heard it said this way before, that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in it. Or you can't always stop yourself from slipping in the mud, but you don't have to roll around in it. (laughs) An eagle may dip its wings in the mud and still soar as an eagle. There is a difference between the sin of weakness and the willful, habitual sin. A righteous man may have a sin of weakness and still be a righteous man. Apparently, there were some about whom John was speaking that thought that they could be called followers of God and yet wallow around in the mud of sin. And what he is addressing here is that concept. He says that you cannot call yourself a believer. If you recall, we're looking at the tests of what it is to be a Christian. In chapter 5, he says that by this you will know that you have eternal life. And so the idea is is that these are tests. These are things that we can look at in our life and say, yes, I am a Christian because I have these qualities in me. And I am assured of eternal life because I have these qualities in me. And what is the quality he's talking about here? We're not engaged in habitual sin. And so there are four ways in which sin is incompatible with the way of life of a believer and therefore should not be practiced by us. I've already read the first one, and that is this. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. In verse 4 it says, whoever sins or whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Now, there is a, a great deal of tendency in our culture to despise laws. And your pastor is among those who despise the law in many ways. Because I believe that what has happened in our culture is that governments have taken on responsibilities that were never designed for them to have. And so I will fuss regularly about um, the, the politicians And the amount of laws that our nation has and we as a people have uh, been burdened with. But one thing that we must understand is that we cannot treat the law of God the same way. We are under the law of God as Christians. And so we are not a lawless people. In fact, we are very lawful people as Christians. And we must live under that law. Now, there is a tendency, just as there is in general society, there is a tendency within the churches to dismiss the law. To say that the law is no longer of value to us as Christians. And I want you to bear with me for a moment because I'm going to read an excerpt 
from a book because I think that J.I. Packer in his book, Concise Theology, describes some of the ways in which the church as a culture has departed from the law and as a result have become in many ways lawless. So he says this, there is dualistic antinomianism. Now, I know that's a long, a long antinomianism just means against the law. And so he's saying that there is a dualistic antinomia. There is a, a view among people that is dualistic with reference to uh, their position against the law. And it says, this appears in the Gnostic heretics against whom Jude and Peter wrote. And also I would say here, uh, John, this view sees salvation as for the soul only and bodily behavior is irrelevant both to God's interests and to the soul's health. So one may behave righteously or riotously and it will not matter. In other words, this position says that uh, it is our soul that is eternal. It is our soul that goes to be with the Lord. So whatever we do physically on earth, it doesn't really matter. That's what's called dualistic antinomianism. There's also spirit-centered antinomianism. Uh, again, he says it this way. It puts such trust in the Holy Spirit's inward prompting as to deny any need to be taught by the law and how to live. Freedom from the law as a way of salvation is assumed to bring with it freedom from the law as a guide to conduct. In the first 150 years of the Reformation era, this kind of antinomianism often threatened. And Paul's insistence that a truly spiritual person acknowledges the authority of God's word through Christ's apostle. apostle. And there's lots of scripture verses for that. And it suggests that the spirit-obsessed Corinthian church was in grip of the same mindset. So we see this in the New Testament as well. This position is, is that, well, I'm under the spirit and I'm being led by the spirit. And so I don't really need to know the law. I don't really need to abide by the law. I'll just, I'll let the Holy Spirit guide me. Well... Will the Holy Spirit direct us contrary to the law? No, it won't. And so there's spirit-centered antinomianism. He also talks about Christ-centered antinomianism. Now we look at that and say, Christ-centered antinomianism? What in the world? This is what he says about this. It argues that God sees no sin in believers because they are in Christ, who kept the law for them. And therefore, what they actually do makes no difference provided they keep on believing. This is the argument that, well, we're in Christ, and since we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, it doesn't really matter what we do, because we'll be seen by God through Christ, who is righteous. And so whatever we do here, it doesn't really matter. Well, that, that's, of course, an affront to the grace of the Lord. And then there's dispensational antinomianism. This holds that keeping the moral law is at no stage necessary for the Christians, since we live under a dispensation of grace and not law. However, law-keeping is a continuous obligation of Christians. I am not freed from God's law, but rather I am freed under Christ's law to live by it. And then there's dialectical antinomianism. Again, these are big words. You don't have to know all these necessarily. You just need to kind of know the trends. But dialectical antinomianism is what Barth and Bruner, who were neo-Orthodox theologians, uh, held to it denies that the biblical law in God's direct command and affirms that the Bible's imperative statements trigger the word of the spirit, which when it comes may or may not correspond exactly to what is written. So what's he saying there? He's saying that we are led by the spirit to interpret the scriptures and the law as we see fit as the needs arise. So there's no not one absolute law that God gives, but rather it is the law as it comes alive to us that we are to live under. And so this is dialectical antinomianism. 
And then finally, there's situational antinomianism. It says that the motive and intention of love is all that God now requires of Christians. And that the commands of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and other ethical parts of the Scriptures, for all that they are ascribed to God directly, are mere rules of thumb for loving. Rules that love may at times disregard. So this position holds to the idea that, well, all we really have to do is love. And so I can ignore this part of the Scripture if it's not understood in the context of love. And so uh, if the law says this, but I think love means this, then I'm just going to love. And we see this so often in the churches today. But I say this. How do we know that love, unless we look directly at the law and what the law says for us to do? So, Christians, we are to be lawful. We are to submit to the laws of God. We are not antinomians. We are not against the law. But, in fact, we are to submit ourselves under the law. The argument then is that if one is truly a believer, he is to pr- not to practice sin because it's incompatible with the law of God under which the believer submits. Christians are not lawless and therefore we are not free to sin. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 16 says, As free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. I've heard it said this way before, that biblical liberty is not freedom to do what you want, but the ability to do what you ought. In other words, when we are free in Christ, when we have been given liberty under Christ, which we really have, it is not a liberty to do whatever we want, freed from the law. But rather it is the power by God's Spirit To live under the law. To be able to do what he calls us to do. Now I use a Chromebook for most of my computing. And if you're not familiar what that is, it's basically a Google product. It's like a tablet with a keyboard. And so it doesn't really have all the same power and features that a, a typical laptop would do. But it's very small and very convenient. It does just about everything that I wanted to do. The only problem is that it's not compatible with a lot of different software. And so something that you might be able to use on, a, on an Apple Mac or something like that, or you might be able to use even on a Windows uh, laptop or something like that, uh, you can't use on my Chromebook because it is incompatible. And the reality of it is that there are certain things in life that are incompatible with the Christian because we run under a different software, we run under a different program, we run under a different uh, mechanism, a different system, and we live under the Spirit, and so it is incompatible for us. To then reject the law. Do not think that you can ignore the law of God and do whatever you want and still be a Christian. The law of God constrains us. And so it should. Secondly, sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. Sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. We see this in verse 5. And it says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Notice there it says that he was manifested to take away our sins. Why is it that Jesus came to earth? You know, we're about ready to celebrate Christmas. And despite all of the commercialization of it, we know that the the bottom line of what Christmas is all about is the coming of the Messiah, the manifestation of the Son of God. And the scriptures clearly say here, as well as in other places, one of the reasons why he was manifested was what? So that he might take away our sins. The work of God is to do away with sin and not to allow it. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, in the context of the marriage responsibility, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be without, so that she should be holy and without blemish. In other words, Christ came, he was manifested so that he might take away sin, that he might remove the spots, that he might remove the blemish, that he might take away those things in us. It is incompatible uh, with the work of Christ, sin. Jesus said in defending his ability to cast out demons, a house divided against itself cannot stand. How could God work against himself? How could we, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, continue to sin after the work of what Jesus has done on the cross. If you recall, uh, one of the first things that is mentioned about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus come and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The work of Christ was to take away our sin. Why then should we live any longer in them? You know, there's something that my dog does that is strange. And uh, some of you probably can relate to this with your dog, but uh, Kirby needs a bath very badly, as he does very regularly. And uh, I have not done, he doesn't like baths. In fact, he's gotten to where <clears throat> if I go into the bathroom, normally he follows me everywhere. But if I go into the bathroom, he sits outside the door and he waits. Because if I try to call him into the bathroom, he, he realizes, oh, this is not a good thing. I'm going to be taking a bath. And so he doesn't want to do that. Uh, but every time that I give him a bath, you know what the first thing he wants to do? Go outside and roll around. Can you believe it? I mean, why would he want to do that? I just cleaned him up. Why would he want to go outside then and roll around? It doesn't make any sense. It's incompatible with being clean. And yet that's the way it is with Christians so often, isn't it? Jesus cleanses us. And yet what is the first thing we want to do? Go roll around in the muck and the mire. That's incompatible with who we are as Christians. That's not the way that it should be. He came to deliver us from sin. He came to wash us and to clean us from sin. We should want to walk in that cleanliness, not go back and roll around in our sin. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Brethren, we should sin no more. But also, uh, thirdly, sin is incompatible with the character of God. It is incompatible with the character of God. We see this in verses 6 and 7. The idea is this. God is righteous, holy, and perfect. Sin isn't and cannot be a part of the character of God. And if we as believers are abiding in him... Or are in him, sin will be incompatible with us because we are in him. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Why? Because we're in him. He does not sin. It's part of his character. And so if we are abiding in him, we too will take on his character. And his character is not to sin. It's incompatible. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. 
Because when we see him in all of his glory, when we know him who he truly is, we know his character, we know his righteousness, we see him in all of his glory and his holiness and his righteousness, and it will move us to be like him when we abide in him. And so how can we then continue to sin? It is contrary to his character and contrary to ours. Verse 7, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, the implication is that there will be some who will try to deceive the brethren, try to deceive us and say, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. But the reality of it is it does matter. And so, so we should not be deceived by that. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Righteousness is compatible with the character of God because he is righteous. And so in righteousness or lack of righteousness or sin is incompatible because he is a righteous God. First John chapter two, verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Romans two, verse 13 says, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Galatians chapter six, verses seven and eight says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will reap everlasting life. Have you ever heard about somebody doing something that just seems so out of character with that person? You said, really? Are you sure you're talking about the same person? Because that's just out of character with them. Have you ever thought about that? That's the way it should be for Christians. I, you know, I think about that. I, I don't know how many of y'all remember the Mr. Rogers show. You remember Mr. Rogers? And uh, some of my kids probably there, Mr. Rahu. But um, Mr. Rogers, of course, was on uh, television. And, and uh, Mr. Rogers was one of those guys who was just, he was always friendly, wasn't he? And he, you know, he never raised his voice. And he was always just very nice and kind. And he would put on his shoes while he was talking to you about all the things that we're going to see today. And as the trolley car comes by, you remember this, right? Can you imagine Mr. Rogers getting angry and yelling at somebody? That would just, if someone would have said, did you hear Mr. Rogers today on the television show? He got angry or something. I would have said, what? That, that just doesn't make any sense. That's not his character, right? Well, that's the way it should be for us as Christians. When, when someone says, did you hear about so-and-so? We're like, I, I can't believe that. They're a Christian. Why would they act that way? That's contrary to their character. That's the point he's getting to here. He says that if we are Christians and we are abiding in Christ and he is righteous and he has no part of sin, that's the way that we should be. That's the way our character should be. And it should be a surprise. Anytime we hear of a Christian acting contrary to the character of Christ, people come to expect certain things from people because it is their pattern of life. It is the way that they have been used to doing things. I, I hope that your um, your success in hunting so far this year has been better than mine. Uh, Joanna has gotten to where she has expected me to come home empty-handed <laughs> because I've done it so many times. And just uh, yesterday, I told her, I said, honey, I'm going to go out this morning or tomorrow morning. It was Friday night. I told her, I said, honey, I'm going to go out tomorrow morning. I'm not going to give me a deer in the morning. She goes, okay, <laughs> whatever you say, right? Kind of a mocking voice. Why? Because I never come home with a deer. <laughs> yeah, that's been my character. She's gotten used to that. That's the way it should be when it comes to sin and Christians. It should be so out of our character. 
It should not be expected by any means, but it should be something contrary to our character. Now the reality is, do we still sin? Of course we do. But that should not be the pattern of our life. That should not be the pattern of our character. There should be a distinguishing mark about our life that is freed from sin. As Christians, our pattern should be that we do not sin. This is what others should expect from us. And it should surprise them when we do sin. So what about you? Do do you reflect the character of God in your life and your patterns? Uh, Would people be surprised if they heard about you and sin? And then fourthly, sin is incompatible with the victory of Christ. Sin is incompatible with the victory of Christ. We see this in verse 8. It says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So again, it says here, he who sins, this carries the idea of a continuous sin. Again, just as it did uh, in the earlier verse, in verse 4. This carries the idea of a habitual practice of sin, something that is a regular, ongoing activity. And it says that those who are of such nature are of the devil. Satan was the originator of sin. It is his practice to sin. In fact, what does the scripture says? It says that Jesus came to give life and to give it life more abundantly. But the Satan came that he might kill, destroy, and deceive. Steal, kill, and destroy. And that's his, that's, that's his character. That's what he is. That's the way he is. And yet it says in verse 8 that he came so that he might destroy these works, that he might be able to gain victory over them. What are the works of the devil? The works of the devil are sin. And this verse clearly says that the devil's work is done away with through Christ. He came to destroy it. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57, it says this, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the what? Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says this, Inasmuch as then as children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That is, he was manifested in the flesh, right? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Who's that? The devil. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, we've been given victory through the blood of Christ and through his work. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 through 12 says this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer having dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Why? Because we're in Christ, and Christ has given us victory over sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. Who doesn't want to be a part of the winning team? You know, it amazes me when people talk about their sports teams. Because if you listen closely, if their team wins, the next day they're like, yeah, we won. If their team loses, what do they say? Oh, man, they lost. You notice that? If they win, it's our team. We won. If they lost, it's like, oh, man, they lost. Why? Because we want to be a part of the winning team, don't we? Well, here's the good news. As Christians, we are. We're a part of the winning team. There is victory in Jesus. Now, we may lose a few battles here and there as we stumble and fall. 
But the end, the reality of it is sin has been done away through the blood of Christ. He is victorious through his blood. Sin and the father of it are in their death rows. Uh, they're, they're just they're trying to hang on as long as they can. But we know the end, don't we? And the end is there is victory in Jesus. Why continue to lose the battles through sin when there is victory to be won? No, instead we should walk in the victory that Jesus has provided through his blood. Fifthly, sin is incompatible with the spirit of God. I said I was going to do four, didn't I? <laughs> I lied. Five. Uh, sin is incompatible with the spirit of God. We see this in verse nine. It says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The idea of this verse is that those who are born again have received the Spirit of God. That is, his seed, as it says. And so he can't sin because God cannot sin. This is a reference, of course, to the new birth. Spoken about in John chapter 3 and many other places. First Peter talks about it. He has implanted in the believer his Holy Spirit. When we are born again, we are given a new nature. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 25 says this, But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And it says in verse 9 that this seed remains. This carries the idea of a permanence. It's not something that comes and goes based upon our actions. The Spirit of God dwells within us, lives within us, endures, remains within us. Now it is true that the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 4 that if we act, uh, if we act uh, in such a way that is contrary to the laws of God, contrary to the will of God, that we grieve the spirit when we sin. And yet it does not leave us. It might be grieved, but it does not leave. And so we are able to remain in him. And because we are able to remain in him, that seed that has been implanted within us continues to grow and mature. And uh, so we can have hope. Further, it is why when we sin, the scriptures say that it is not we who sin, but the sin within us. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 17 says this, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. John chapter 10, verse 28 says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The spirit of God remains within us. And so because of that, we can have hope that we will persevere in the faith and that we will remain until the end, just as it would be incom uh, incompatible for a lettuce seed to produce tomatoes. So, too, it is incompatible for the seed of God to produce anything other than righteousness. It cannot produce sin. So the more that we allow the spirit of God to control our life, the more that we allow the spirit of God to fill us, the more that we allow the spirit of God to move within us and to work within us, the more that we will be able to avoid sin and we will put to death. The deeds of the flesh and the work of the enemy. Therefore, submit to the spirit of God and you will not sin. So to the spirit and you will not reap sin. So let us uh, conclude here. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. Sin is incompatible with the work of Christ. Sin is incompatible with the character of God. Sin is incompatible with the victory of Christ. And sin is incompatible with. With the spirit of God. You cannot claim to be a believer. And continue in sin. I know that. Um, we, we fall. Sometimes we stumble. Um, but we're not talking about stumbling. We, we shouldn't stumble. We should avoid stumbling. But sometimes we stumble. But here's the question. 
Is there that sin in your life that you know that continues to beset you? That sin that you continue to encounter day after day after day that you just you can't seem to get rid of. That's a continuous sin. And the Bible says that if you remain in that state, you can have no confidence of your genuine salvation. You must turn away from that. Turn from it and turn to Christ in repentance and in faith. Let's pray. And I think that it's time we start crying for our nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?